So we're still progressing <laughs> through our Heaven and Earth series. It's been a long time. It's been really good so far. Um, we are here at this time, right at the beginning of fall, and I always think it's appropriate because Jesus is giving us all of these parables about work in the vineyard. And he tells us about heaven, and he tells us about it in using a vineyard as our image. And this time, his audience is not just the Pharisees or the Sadducees who came to challenge him, or not just his disciples, but at this point in the Bible, Jesus has already come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. This is his preparation for his last week on earth before his death and resurrection. He's just got done kicking out all the money changers from the temple. <laughs> this is important. This is our context. And so let me tell you a little bit about how the money changers and all that kind of thing worked. What happened was this festival, this is Passover, and Passover was one of the central feasts where all Jewish people were supposed to make a pilgrimage back to the Holy Land, back to Jerusalem, to meet together on the Day of Atonement and have sacrifices so that their sins would be wiped away. And if you weren't there, guess what? Your sins weren't gone. <laughs> you had to live in your sin for another year. And because of all these people from all these different countries, you had people from Egypt, you had people from Asia, you had people from all over, they had all these different currencies. And people making those long trips couldn't bring their animals with them. So they fell into this trap where I'll just buy one when I get there. And we had some very entrepreneurial, um, very capitalistic-minded, go-getter type people who said, I know a way to make a buck. What I'm going to do is I'm going to have a do-it-all, one-stop shop where you bring your currency from Asia or from Egypt or from wherever, and you trade it here, and we'll trade you the temple currency for it at a very healthy interest rate <laughs> with a very healthy exchange rate on our part. Do you guys get what I'm saying? It's like going to Canada sometimes, you know, <laughs> going to the, uh, in reverse, going to the duty-free shop. And so <laughs> on top of that, you not only have the ability to set the rates for yourself, no legislation, no oversight, no making sure that things got done right, but you also had the opportunity <laughs> to have all these people who are forced to buy your product. They're forced to. They have no other choice. It's kind of like going to the Bills game and expecting to buy water when it's 90 degrees outside. <laughs> Jack up the price. Or trying to get airfare out of hurricane country there would be these exorbitant prices on the animals themselves, so they're going to get you. They're going to get you coming in and get you going out. They're going to get you on the ex currency exchange, and they're going to get you again <laughs> on the price of the animals. Right? It's a racket. So Jesus, holy, wonderful, precious, patient, gentle Jesus, got a whip of cords... <laughs> And he threw all the money changers out by force. And we know that Jesus was a carpenter before the days of power tools. So he was jacked. I want you to picture like Arnold Schwarzenegger tossing people out of the temple. Okay? This was, this was serious. He could do it. 
So he purified the temple and he infused morality into capitalism. And then an amazing thing happened. Spontaneously, all the children began to sing. (laughs) Can you imagine this? This giant disruption to this place of worship on one of the major festivals. He throws all these people out and the children begin to sing the same song that they had sung to him the day before. Hosanna to the son of David. Now here's where my trouble comes in. Because I wear this collar. I'm ordained as a priest. And the bad guys in this passage are the priests. (laughs) That's not comfortable for me. (laughs) And I need to find a way to reconcile this. So bear with me. Because if somebody comes into church and they start causing a commotion, or they start making changes, or they start readjusting things on the walls, or moving things from one place to another, or flushing out the coffee, (laughs) or they disrupt our singing or our prayers, guess whose job it is to intervene? It's mine. I'm the dad. You're in my house. You're in God's house, but I'm in charge, and I get to deal with you. And I try to do it in a nice way, and thank God I don't have to do it very often. But I can imagine these guys are in a tough spot. (laughs) Like, they're seeing someone causing a disruption, causing a commotion, messing with the way that we do things. I actually feel like they're doing the right thing. (laughs) It's their job to go in and to intervene when there's a disruption happening, to protect the people who have come to worship. They're doing the right thing. Keep good order, set things right, moderate, protect the people. And then I realize the problem is not that they saw a stranger walk in and they intervened. The problem is they didn't recognize who walked in. That's the problem. In the viewpoint of heaven, it would be something like if the patriarch walked in and said, what are you doing making money out of all this stuff? Selling space in the church for shops? Why are you asking people for $100 seeds for faith? Why are you charging for parking? And then if I walked up to him and I said, I'm sorry, who are you? And if I said, this isn't your church, you got to get out. You're causing a disruption. My problem would not be in the intervention. My problem would be that I didn't even recognize who was there. Me being a good priest would be determined by my ability to recognize those in authority. It was not the priest's downfall that they confronted this disruption. It was their downfall that they didn't recognize the Son of God, Jesus Christ the Messiah. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to take a closer look at this. Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 23. And when he entered the temple, this is the second time he's entered the temple in two days. (laughs) He entered first to clear out the money changers, and then he taught, and then he went to Bethany, and he relaxed for a little bit. And then he came back the next day. This is his second time entering the temple. And the alarm system went off. (laughs) The spotting system went off. The surveillance system went off. And the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. In the temple, and they said, By what authority 
Are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, you guys know if you've listened to me for a while, anytime Jesus responds to a question with a question, it's going to be good. <laughs> like the gloves are off, the game is on, let's go. And isn't it amazing that Jesus doesn't come right out and start giving a master's class in theology at this point? He could have gone into, here's the truth, here's the Bible, the biblical reason for all of this, here's what you need to understand, but he doesn't. He doesn't throw his pearls before swine. He doesn't just give his truth to just anybody. We've talked about this before. He only gives the truth to those who are honestly seeking him. We've had this discussion about skepticism versus cynicism. Skepticism is a good thing. It means I'm not sure what I know and what I don't know, so I'm going to look at all the facts and have an open mind and make an honest decision. Cynicism is where you get into trouble because that's where you've made up your mind already about what is true and no matter what comes your way, it doesn't matter. You're not even going to consider it. Cynicism is a really hard thing to deal with. So I've been doing this Bible study with a non-believer and just sharing gospel conversations. I just kind of met him in my travels and we've been doing this Bible study. <laughs> And before we started the Bible study, he would ask me these questions like, what is your viewpoint on sola scriptura? And what is it, what, this and that and that and this, all these heavy theological things. And as soon as I would start to answer, he would be like, yeah, but, now, yeah, but wait, listen to this, yeah, that except, before I could even finish my explanation, before I even got a full sentence out, he would go on his diatribe. And I realized, and so I asked him, do you honestly want to know? Or have you already made up your mind about all these things? And so the next time he asked me, I said, all right, now, do you really want to know? Or are you just asking so that you can hear yourself talk? And he said, yeah, I guess I kind of already know. <laughs> I said, so ask me something you actually want to hear. Ask me something you don't know. And he said, well, I've never read the Bible. And so I said, all right, you want to do a Bible study? And he said, sure. And so every, every other Tuesday we get together, we do a Bible study. <laughs> and here's the problem. I think all too often in this country, we as Christians have it in our mindset that it's our privilege, not, you know what, not even our privilege, our responsibility to let people know what the truth is, especially when they're not following it. It's my job as a Christian to beat you over the head with this Bible until you get it into your brain. And if I don't stand up, and if I don't present the word of God exactly as it should be, then I'm not doing my job as a Christian. After all, Matthew 5, I'm going to let my little light shine. After all, I'm not going to be ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1. Right? Makes sense. That's what we were taught kind of in... Uh, Sunday school and in children's church. Here's the thing, though. In Matthew 5, you can't just stop. In Matthew 5, it's, it says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good deeds and be drawn to me. Do you see what letting your light is? It's not just speaking and beating people over the head. Romans 1, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
It is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes. Now be honest with me. Yeah, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but honestly think in your mind. How many times have you talked to somebody and had this idea of what you're saying is wrong and I need to stand up for what is true? Now I want you to also think whether you've ever done it on Facebook. Because that's where it happens nowadays. Okay, let me offer you something different. Instead of being obnoxious and beating people over the head with the Bible, I want you to be a light. A light in the darkness draws people to itself. Doesn't even have to say anything. It just is what it is, and people are drawn to it. That unbelieving friend of mine doing that Bible study, we're doing it every other week because God is drawing him so that he wants to know the truth. And he wants to ask honest questions now. And he doesn't just live in his own world where he defines what is true, but he's actually seeking now for the first time what is true according to God. So do such good works. Live the gospel so well that other people are dying to know what you've got. Be so full of Christian joy that everyone around you is like, man, you know, I really want to know what her secret is because she's just awesome. (laughs) And I really want to know what he's got going on, what he's got that I don't have because I don't feel the same way he feels. I don't act the same way that he acts. I don't, I do some things that he doesn't do. Be the light. Don't be the voice. The unbelieving world will be drawn in by the gospel being lived, not just the gospel being spoken. So be careful, be wise, be as gentle as doves and as cunning as snakes on Facebook, at the water cooler, (laughs) especially when you hear someone say something that we disagree with. Here's my advice. Let it hang, let it be, and develop the reputation of wisdom so that people will ask for the truth. And if you feel guilty about that, you can take solace in the fact that that's what Jesus did. So here's Jesus, and if you don't believe me, just listen. Here's Jesus challenged by the chief priests and the scribes saying things that are absolutely wrong. Challenging his authorities. By what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus answered them, I will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. He's challenging their honesty. Their honesty. He says, the baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And then, all right, huddle up, guys. Holy huddle time. We need to get our stories straight. We need to get our facts right. And they huddle up. And they're like, okay, now if we say from heaven, then he's going to catch us because then he's going to say, well, John pointed to me and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then later he said, I must decrease so that he must increase. And John identified him as the Messiah. So if we say that John was from heaven then we're stuck. And there's no point to our question. And do you see, they already knew the right answer, but they didn't believe it. So they weren't asking an honest question. And then they go to the next option. Now, if we don't say from heaven, if we say from man, they're going to kill us. (laughs) We're going to lose all credibility with this massive amount of people. Don't forget, 
There are hundreds, if not thousands, of people here for this feast at the temple. Jesus is not just talking to his little 12 disciples. He's talking to hundreds and thousands of people. And this confrontation is happening with everybody silent looking at them. (laughs) Wondering, how is this going to turn out? And so they're really worried. And they say, if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they hold that John was a prophet. And so they answer Jesus. When you look at the Greek, it's funny the way it works. They don't just say, we don't know. They say, well, we don't know exactly. <laughs> like, we kind of know, but we just don't, we're not, we don't have it all laid out yet. So give us a, a few weeks and maybe we can prepare something and with footnotes, right? And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. There was a saint named St. Rabinus Maris in 8847, who said there are two reasons why the knowledge of truth should be kept back from those who ask. Either when he who asks is unfit to receive, or from his hatred or contempt of the truth is unworthy to have that which he asks open to him. 1,200 years later, we're still trying to figure out that out. Now remember, the whole crowd, everybody's watching this confrontation. And then for the sake of the crowd, Jesus could have just ended the conversation there, but he didn't. And it was because of the crowd that was watching. And so he lays a parable in front of them. And remember, we said that a parable means to lay beside. It's a measuring rod, a a way to say, if they understand, if they believe, they're going to understand this. But if they don't believe, they won't, they'll just be confused and they won't get it and they'll think it's foolishness. So he puts out this parable for the sake of the crowd and the disciples and he says, what do you think? Talking to the crowd now, what do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first and he said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Now, I'm going to let you in on a little secret here. If you go to the Middle East today and you tell that parable and you say, which one was the good son? They're going to say the second one. That's surprising to us. Because in America, we're all about results. <laughs> we're all about get the job done. We're all about pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get it done. Get her done, right? Okay. But in the Middle East, it's not about getting it done. That's not the primary concern. The primary concern is how are you seen in the marketplace? Are you seen with honor? Do you have your honor in the viewpoint of all of society? That comes first. So you'll notice Jesus doesn't say which one is the good son because they would have said the one who just saved face was obedient in public but disobeyed in private so that your honor is retained. That's what they would have said. So Jesus doesn't ask which one is the good son. He says which of the two did the will of the father. And they said the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, 
The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of heaven of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Now let me tell you a little bit about the tax collectors and the prostitutes. (laughs) The tax collectors were the epitome of evil in Jewish society. They were the lowest a Jewish man could go is to become a tax collector. So Jesus is saying, not just the Gentiles, but the, the most sinful people you could get have even repented and believed. But you do not. The prostitutes were the epitome of the most immoral women in Jewish society. Not Gentiles, but of Jews. And Jesus is saying this extremely pointedly to the priests and to all those watching that it's not by saving face. That it's not by saying the right things and doing the right things, but it's by believing and repenting that you find yourself in heaven with God. So I've titled my sermon today, The Danger of Being Religious. Being religious is not inherently wrong. You'll never hear me say that Christianity is not a religion. It is a religion. You can't deny that. There are religious aspects to what we do. You're about to see one in about 10 minutes here at that table. Religion is not a bad thing. Being only religious is a bad thing, is a danger. And there's a danger in doing what we do, having a book in front of me where I could, if I wanted to, just read, have it go through my mind and in my head I'm in the Bills game. Or I'm thinking about my fantasy lineup. There's a danger in doing what we do. There is. I could just come up here and go rote, just read through all the words the same that I would the tax code in the court of law. I could. The hardest part of being a Christian is keeping Christ in your life. It's so easy to say, well, I'm living a Christian life. I'm doing everything that I should do. I'm saying everything that I should say. I'm being who I should be. But Christ isn't in anything that I'm doing. It's a big challenge to keep Christ in your Christian life. Too often we forget to ask him to be a part of what we do. We get into the routines of life where we wake up and we eat. And then we go to work and we eat. And then we come home and we eat and then we go to bed. (laughs) And it's too easy to just get into that routine and that routine and we, we never give God space. And if you don't believe me, I want to put something in front of you. In 2009, there was a study done. They did a survey where they asked all these people, this specific group of people, what do you do with your life? What do you have time for? How do you spend your time? And these people self-reported that less than one hour per day was spent in prayer or devotions. Less than one hour. 14% said that they didn't pray or study the word at all in their personal walk with God at all throughout their week. That ultimate pinnacle of what should be the Christian walk, that main thing that we should do as Christians, but many reported Facebook watching, TV watching, movie watching, more than 10 hours a week, some as much as 15 hours a week. That's two hours a day 
You spent on entertainment, but you couldn't even have an hour for prayer and devotion. Now I'm going to let you behind the scenes a little bit. That, the people they interviewed, were the pastors. That's the American pastor. If that's what American pastors are doing with their lives, what do you think the people in their flock are doing? Are they doing more? Are they doing better? Are they doing less? Now, I'll be honest. I've been there. You catch me on a bad week, and you can find me binge-watching Star Trek with the best of them. Like, that, I, I'll just do it. <laughs> but sometimes what we need to repent of is going through the motions of a godly life, but leaving God out of it. Second Chronicles chapter 7 has God talking to Solomon and he says, whenever my people get off track and you leave me out and I draw you back to me, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Raise your hand if you believe that this land needs healing. I want to let you know, if you believe that, and if your desire is for God to heal this land, it starts here. It starts here in this place, in this family of families. Let's now commit ourselves to being a people who repent, who constantly repent when we leave God out of our lives. Let's seek his faith. Let's pray. Let's humble ourselves that we might not be last to enter into the kingdom of heaven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Please stand for prayer. With all our heart, and with all our mind, let us pray to the Lord, saying, Lord, have mercy. For the peace from above, for the loving kindness of God, and for the salvation of our souls, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, Lord have mercy. For the peace of the world, for the welfare of the Holy Church of God, and for the unity of all peoples, let us pray to the Lord.